And it was an interesting research project to just go find, to scrub the web, the internet basically to, to get all this data and put it together in a cohesive way. So it started as mostly a listing of applications, not news, not um, feature articles, not reviews, just a listing of applications. And I, I shared it with the uh, evangelist, uh, Guy Kawasaki's list. He then shares it with the list. It gets published. And within 48 hours, I had like just a massive amount of emails coming in saying, this is awesome. And I'm going to give this to my brother-in-law who's an architect on the Mac or whatever. And, and architects started writing in. And so right away, what people suggested was you should cover the news of what's going on, like when products are released and updates and so forth. And that's how it sort of began for me. I, I, I thought, okay, well, since I'm interested in this subject, why don't I dig in deeper and start doing this? Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio, a podcast that talks with architects to learn how they use Apple products in the practice of architecture with your host, Neil Pan. Support for Inside the Apple Studio comes from Monograph. Monograph is the cloud-based practice operations solution built for architects by architects. Learn how Monograph can help you be more productive at monograph.com. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio. I'm honored to have an award-winning architect that has built a reputation in the industry as a reference and authority in the world of 3D and CAD in general, and on the Apple platform specifically. He leads his studio's digital practice management and is a respected writer on the subject of digital technologies in practice. I'm honored to welcome architect Anthony Frosto Robleto to the show. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I'm really honored to have you on this show. I've been following you and your site and your work for a long time. So I'm really thrilled to have you here. And uh, I look forward to our conversation on this show. Yeah, me too. So I want to start off with what it really inspired you to become an architect? Well, my earliest memory of that is probably going back to kindergarten. I We were making these books in class for um, our parents, I think for a Christmas gift, like a book that had like a, we had different felts that we can use as covers. And in one of uh, the pages of the book, which all the pages were colored with coloring crayons, we, I drew a picture of my house and my teacher said, that's a really good drawing. You, uh, you should be an architect. And of course, that was the first time I heard the word architect. And I, I think I, my mother heard about this uh, somehow from the teacher. And from that point on, I knew the word architect and I knew that that word meant that you could draw like houses and buildings. And I was fascinated when I was a youngster uh, with drawing in general. And that's probably the origin of my desire to maybe inquire into what an architect actually is and how you can do that for a living when you grow up. Now, did you continue the drawing process as you grew up and went through middle school, high school, things like that? I, I did, but I didn't. Uh, I drew um, a lot as a child and uh, my mother would buy me these big Strathmore drawing pads uh, different sizes. And I would, I would draw all kinds of things, um, worlds, uh, and of course, uh, houses, but usually everything was elevation. You, you see a kid's drawing of 
a house and my drawing really wasn't fundamentally more different. It wasn't like I drew like, you know, like a modern building or something, you know, it wasn't like a Richard Meyer house. It was like a classic child drawing of a house, but it was just very neatly done. And, and I, I think that's why I got the praise for it. But so drawing uh, was something I loved to do as a kid. And then my grandparents, uh, my maternal grandparents, uh, I think when I was in sixth grade, they were, uh, they were starting the process of uh, building um, uh, a home for themselves. Like a, I think it was a third home they were going on to. And they had hired an architect. And I remember my grandparents showing me the blueprints uh, when I was in sixth grade. And I, I became, that's when I became incredibly fascinated with floor plans. Um, and at that point, they, they really kind of encouraged me, my grandmother in particular. So I started drawing floor plans. I, you know, I got a T-square. I got all the equipment to, to, to do this at home. And that's when I started really thinking seriously that I like this, uh, this kind of thing as an activity. And the fact that you can do this uh, as, your, as your job just really excited me. So I, I, by, the, by the time I was in middle school, I was like kind of set in my mind that, yes, I maybe I want to be an architect possibly, so. Now, were you able to take any drafting type classes in high school that kind of continued that? Yeah, absolutely. We had, um, we had one drafting class in middle school, which I think everyone had to take. And I remember we, we did like, we did the basics of projection and we drew objects and it was more mechanical drafting. Yeah. Um, but I love that class. And I think so many Americans uh, you know, in our generation kind of had a class like that in middle school. And then in high school, we had a dedicated artificial drafting class, which was focused on architecture. And I took it every year as my elective. And it was great because our teacher was someone who uh, had worked in the profession at one time as a professional architectural drafts person. And, um, and I was very lucky because in uh, my town in Santa Barbara, uh, California, um, the three major high schools, the four major high schools, uh, all had artificial drafting classes. And we, in the local AI chapter, had a competition, a design competition, every year at the end of, I think, the year in the spring term. And you would sort of start the year in the fall, building up your basic skills. And then you had the opportunity to work with your teacher and an architect from a local firm to kind of mentor you to develop a design, um, to look over your work and to basically submit a design for a kind of competition. So my first and only true AIA award um, was actually from senior year when I actually won that competition. Uh, it was it was a really great learning, learning experience and uh, something that I, I wish every AI chapter did this around the country. It'd be great to, to kind of uh, excite the, the young people in high school who want to maybe be an architect. It's a very good way to mentor and bring up people into the profession. Right. Not sure that happens so much anymore. No, I'm not sure either. And um, one of the things that fascinated me about this time was in, in architectural high school drafting classes, we had the usual equipment, but what we didn't have was trace paper. And when um, the teacher uh, took us in the evening, I don't know how we got there, but we would meet at the architect's office. And of course, you'd roll out these uh, this trace paper, the, the, the yellow kind, the more orangey kind. Right. And I was fascinated with how facile this, this architect was at modifying and correcting and showing you what's possible with your floor plans. That, that skill that we acquire as architects 
uh, that those planning skills and the facility we have to work with trace paper uh, was like it kind of blew me away. And I'm like, oh, I really want to I want to have that skill. And you know, so by the time I was a senior in high school, I, I really was set on being an architect. Take us after high school. Where did you go next? So at some point in high school, uh, this, uh, you know, the colleges start coming around and the tech schools start coming around your high school. And there was a tech school in Phoenix called, um, well, it was Phoenix, Phoenix Institute came through the, the class one day. And there were a bunch of architects that taught there. And this was a school to teach you how to be an architectural, dra- a professional draftsman. And that was going to be your, your career. And um, I didn't at that time really understand the difference between architectural drafts people and architects. Um, and I didn't really know the nuanced difference, right? So I was attracted to that program because I just wanted to get into it. I didn't, you know, I wanted to go to college, but I didn't want to spend, I really just wanted to be, I wanted to have this job and do this right away. So I went to that, that program in Phoenix for a year and then um, came back to Santa Barbara and then started taking college courses at Santa Barbara City College and then thinking, okay, now I actually know the difference about between a professional drafts person versus a licensed architect. And I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be a licensed architect. So I focused on uh, my college education and then ended up in Boston at the Boston Architectural Center, which is now called the Boston Architectural College. So before you get to Boston, though, you worked for some other firms during that time, I assume, when you were at the City College of Santa Barbara? I was. And um, so what happened is uh, the way the, the Institute in Phoenix works is you go there and they arrange your housing. And then all these local Phoenix architecture firms um, hire people as entry-level people. And I, I got a job. Um, for an architect who was doing a lot of work for AT&T in these big data kind of centers or office buildings. And he was doing some really wild creative stuff. And he nurtured me. And he was also a, um, he went to the Franklin Wright School out there in Taliesin West. So he was a big Franklin Wright guy. And at that time, you know, growing up, what you're exposed to as a kid in America in terms of who the important architects are, Franklin Wright's at the top of the list. So I was already very versed in who he was. So I had Tellies and West at my disposal. I had this Tellies and West trained architect who was mentoring me and we were doing interesting work for uh, AT&T while I was, you know, these classes were all at night. So in the day I was working in this firm and then I was working for like three to four hours in the evening uh, learning how to be a professional draftsman. I did end up, when I came out of that program, you you were basically uh, entry level professional architectural draftsman or draft woman, and there was a lot of women in the program. And I decided to come back to Santa Barbara. I got a job right away for a young guy who came out of um, AS, ASU, uh, so he too knew the desert. And uh, he was in Santa Barbara starting his firm doing high end housing, and I worked for him for several years before I worked for Warner and Gray, uh, which is a very well known. Um, was a very well-known Santa Barbara high-end firm, did work in LA. And that was the beginning sort of my love for high residential work because we had some great clients like Jimmy Iovine, even the Jimmy Iovine, who was a record producer for like Bono, was one of our clients. We had, uh, we had 
movie stars for some of our clients and governors. And, and it was really exciting. Uh, it was an exciting period for me. And that was all before I went to Boston. What took you to Boston? Well, I was working for Warner and Gray and I was working with a lot of people who had master's degrees. Almost everyone had master's degrees there and from really good schools like Princeton, um, well, Berkeley too, out West, but a lot of people from the East Coast. And at that time, I, you know, my goal was I want to get my BR, my five-year degree, sit for the exam, become a licensed architect and just go at it, you know, and, and see where I could go as a professional architect. But these guys um, and gals had master's degrees in the area. They were telling me things like, you gotta, you got to go study in Europe. you got to see the great European cities. They were trying to expand my, my viewpoint on, on what it meant to be an architect. And it was great that they did. So uh, they encouraged me to look at East Coast schools. I was focused on Cal Poly, uh, which I believe is where you're from, right? Yes, yes, it is. So that was the school to go to if you were in Southern California, especially in the Santa Barbara area. And I ended up deciding to, to look at East Coast schools. And then uh, I was working with a guy who was from Boston, born in Boston, but went to Berkeley. And he, and he convinced me that Boston was the, 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 the most superior uh, living uh, urban laboratory for architecture, for both architecture and urbanism. And he said, that's the best city in the United States if you want to be in the best laboratory, uh, you know, the living laboratory of architecture. So I looked at Boston schools and I discovered the Boston Architectural College. And uh, it's, and that's how it all began for me. And I decided to apply and end up here. Now it makes sense why you're in Boston. So while at Boston, though, you did go to the Studio Arts College International in Florence. Yes, I did. You did take their advice and you got to go to Europe. What was that experience like? Oh, that was a fantastic experience. I mean, I, I really think every, everyone in architecture program should get a chance to take a semester, even a, a summer term in, in, in Europe. That was organized through uh, Northeastern's uh, you know, in Boston, North, Northeastern University has an architectural program. And um, the person who was leading the group uh, of students to, to Saatchi, as we called it in Florence, uh, was the head of the Northeastern program. And it was a group of us. It was one person from Harvard, GSD, uh, a couple people from Northeastern, and I was from uh, the BAC and one person from Wenting Wentworth. And that was our local little contingent. And of course we get there and there's kids, obviously or students from all over. Um, and uh, it was a program that really focused on art history, uh, sculpture, painting, drawing. But because we had an architect and the head of the program in Northeastern coming with us uh, to the program to teach, he was in a teach and architectural studio. So we did, you know, a summer studio in Florence, and it was a lot of fun, uh, but I, I actually enjoyed the art history um, education there the most. Yeah, it's a good place to explore a lot of art history. Florence is like the epicenter. Yeah, epicenter of the Renaissance, right? And so it was just, it's hard to describe how impactful that was for me. I Obviously, we had a lot of free time. I was walking around, seeing all the monuments all the buildings and taking a ton of pictures and drawing a lot of drawing. Um, it really ignited my imagination and it was a turning point for my own work within 
school. I was, I was in my fourth year, beginning fourth year then, or I was in a start fourth year after that. The international program, you were there just for a summer? Yes. It was a summer turn. I, I think it was six weeks, five to six weeks. It was a you know, fast experience. But um, by the end, I think I was really bummed when I was leaving because I had built up some facility in Italian and I was actually starting to dream in Italian. And, um, and I thought, wow, this is, this is really exciting. If I stayed here longer, I would really probably learn this language. Uh, and then I had to leave. <laughs> so, <laughs> I was out of money, had to leave, you know, no choice. Right. Right. So you come back, you finish your degree and after graduating, where did you go next? So I went to work for Fred Coder, who was at, at that time, Dean at Yale. And I had known about Fred for, for years because I had worked in an office um, in Boston with a young man who had worked for Coder Kim and both the Boston and the London office. And it was really that period that got me very interested in urbanism. And, and you know, I just, you know, I read everything I could uh, by, by Fred and every, everything related to the Cornell School of Architecture in terms of uh, kind of the new urbanism. It was, I was very fortunate, you know, my architectural hero, hero had an office in the town that I was going to school in. And so I just simply applied. I had a good, um, I had a very good instructor at the BAC who I took two times uh, named Eric Thorkelson from Michael Dennis's office. One time Michael Dennis and Fred Coder had a firm together. And so they knew each other very well. And so those two firms were kind of connected. And, um, and, and Eric became my thesis advisor and he, he put in a good word for me. And so I got an interview and I got hired. And I worked for Fred for two years. It, it was kind of like Susie Kim would call that firm a sort of a finishing school uh, experience. And it felt more like school than work. Obviously, it was work. But the way it felt as a studio, as a professional practice, felt much more like, like architecture school than, than a, a common architectural firm. Interesting. So what were you doing there that made it feel that way? I don't think I did anything to make it feel that way. I think it was the way the environment was set up. I mean, Fred was a teacher at heart. Uh, he was at Yale leading that architecture school. Susie taught as well. And so you were, it was a firm run by professors um, who happened to have great um, projects to, to work on. Most of the work was urban design and we were doing work in Beirut. Um, we were doing work in London, um, Dallas, different parts of the world. It was just, um, you know, lots of model making, uh, foam models. Um, they had an incredible model shop. And, uh, it, you know, we spent a lot of late nights there. So it had that feeling like, you know, like school. Right. You know, so obviously I think what made it feel so much like practice, like not like practice, but more like architecture school is the way Fred led the practice. It was... Um, there was a lot of teaching going on on some on some level. There was a, a sense of um, a, a sort of a bigger mission that had to do with architecture with a capital A, or urbanism with a capital U. And and so um, you didn't get the sense that we're, this was a place where it was bottom line thinking oriented. This was design oriented at the highest level and and um, kind of like spare no expense. So in terms of our our desire and fire to do the best work possible. And, you know, there was a lot of really talented people there and I learned a lot from everyone. And um, 
it was it was just a real passionate place to be at. The types of projects it sounds like contributed to that feeling as well, right? You're working on large urban projects, which is very similar sometimes to what you do in studio. Exactly. Yes, that and and I think we did a couple competitions too, and so those things all felt more like school. So after the two years there, where did you go next? That's when I decided to take a break, and I needed a break. I uh, I had my sec my wife. My, we had our second child, and uh, and during that time, and it was very hard to have a baby in the house. Uh, sleep for me was all challenging with a baby in the house. And I needed all the energy that I could possibly muster to just do my best at Carter Kim. And, and, um, and so I, I was burnt out. I, I was burnt out in two years. So I needed, I needed a break. And, and, and at that time, uh, the internet was taking off. This was the late nineties or 98 and the internet was on fire and everyone was talking about the web and we, people out at the firm were starting to learn things about the web how to build websites and so forth. I was starting to learn how to build websites. And while I was there, uh, I was talking to a young Chinese architect who was in the GSD. And there was a Mac firm. It was the first firm that I worked at that was like all Mac, 100%. And I told him I wanted to build a website. And he said, well, what do you want to build a website about? And I said, I don't really know. I, I just want to build one. I want to know how to build a website and I'm learning. And he said, um, why don't you build a website about the Mac and architecture? And cause there's no good sources out there for this subject matter. And this is the, you know, this is 98 Apple's been in crisis for a good year and a half now. Right. Um, the whole windows taking over the world thing was a major theme. And everyone was thinking that Apple was going to, to, to die. And so I basically was, I thought that was a good idea. And so I'm like, I think I'll do that. Cause that really is something that sort of doesn't exist. There isn't a site out there where you can find all the information that you would need to uh, practice architecture on the Mac platform. I knew there were many firms uh, using the Mac. I had been in other firms that used the Mac and windows and big firms that had multiple things going on. And I, I decided to take that on. You build a site and where did you think it was going to maybe go or what was your goals for it at the time beyond just, I want to build a site and here's a subject I can build. I think I can build a site about. I think my original goals were so focused on actually just acquiring the skills to build a site and not so much on what the site may be and become. I was on Guy Kawasaki's Evangelista. Evangelist. Evangelist. I was on that on that list and uh, reading everything I could at the time about sort of what was going on with Mac. And so I, 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 I set about to just do a good website and to organize the information really well and to make it attractive. And it was an interesting research project to just go find, to scrub the web, the internet, basically, to, to get all this data and put it together in a cohesive way. So it started as mostly a listing of applications, not news, not um, feature articles, not reviews, just a listing of applications. And I, I shared it with the uh, evangelist 
uh, Guy Kawasaki's list. He then shares it with the list. It gets published. And within 48 hours, I had like just a massive amount of emails coming in saying, this is awesome. And I'm going to give this to my brother-in-law who's an architect on the Mac or whatever. And, and architects started writing in. And so right away, what people suggested was you should cover the news of what's going on, like when products are released and updates and so forth. And that's how it sort of began for me. I, I, I thought, okay, well, since I'm interested in this subject, why don't I dig in deeper and start doing this? And then a big, a big turning point was when, um, Sean Flaherty of then Minicad, uh, who was the CTO of, uh, uh, what's it called, Deal Graphsoft at the time, and said, would you, would you interview Richard Deal? Um, we think your site's awesome. This is a great resource. Would you interview him for a feature article? And that was really the very first feature article I ever wrote. So I think now you've just answered my question, which was, how did I first find out about Architosh? Because I was on Guy Kawasaki's Evangelist as well. And I have to think that has to be how I learned about your site. It might have been. I think one of the things that made Architosh famous in the very early years was I got an email one day from a guy who was a UPS driver. And he says to me, uh, I have a story to tell you. And I don't think the world knows about this yet. But Bill Gates's house was designed on a Mac. Isn't that ironic? And I asked him, how do you know this? And so he was explained to me the connections and so forth. And as I dug in deeper, uh, I got introduced to an architect named Robert Fafman, who has a practice, I think, in Pittsburgh. And he, at the time, was working for Bowling Chewinski Jackson. And they were paired up to design that Gates compound. And um, he had found Architosh too and started filling me in on uh, the truth of this, that Bolton Twisty Jackson was at the time on the Mac, I think doing MicroStation, maybe on the Mac. And um, when they got the commission for the Gates house, um, he personally modeled the, the, this amazing concrete garage structure that, that's there. So he knew intimately what was going on uh, with that project and, and uh, the practice, which he was no longer at the practice. At He was no longer with that firm. He, I think, went off and started his own practice, but he, he was able to relay all this. So I published a story about Gates' house being on the Mac, and it got a lot of airtime all over, and, it, and I think it brought a lot of attention to Architosh as well. So that could have been another way that you may have learned, uh, but maybe it was the, the list itself. So while you're doing this, you go back to work at, at a firm, I should say. Yes, yes, I, I, I yes, exactly. I go, I, I get invited to uh, digitize a practice in Lexington that was a high-end residential firm, and um, so I, I, I start doing that, and they asked me to, um, to kind of join them, and I said, "Well, I have Architosh, so." I will do this, but only on the condition that, you know, I always get to keep Architosh and we'll kind of modulate my hours. I'll work 25 hours a week or something like that. And so that was the arrangement. And um, within a couple of years, most people were doing projects on the computer there and, and uh, it was going well. And um, the transition was going well from analog to, to CAD. And they asked me to, to work more hours and I kind of, 
increase my odds a little bit, you know, slowly from like 25 to 28 and then to 32. And as the years rolled on, my involvement with the firm got deeper and more committed and, and I ended up doing larger projects there. And, and that's kind of the story of how I ended up at Morehouse McDonald. So when you first started Architosh, though, you were you working at another firm at the time or that you were on your break at that point? I started Architosh technically when I was at Coder Kim working on the concept and actually compiling the information and research and learning my HTML skills and, and working within a program to build the site. I think that if you remember, there was a Claris um, software tool for building websites. It was very simple and basic. And that's what I used to build the first version of Architosh. And then I wanted a more, a more advanced site with more capabilities. And so I, I, I had to make that big decision about which tool to choose. And I ended up with going in the Dream, uh, Dreamweaver direction or Macromedia's Dreamweaver at the time. And, and I, think, I think most of the, 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 what I call the second version of the site, which was built on Dreamweaver, was during, was during the time when I was between firms. Before we get a little more into Architosh, I want you to kind of talk about your time at Morehouse McDonald and Associates and what you've been doing there, because you've been there for more than 20 years, which is not always very common. Not everybody works for the same firm for all, all those years. No, that's true. That's very true. I, one of the things that uh, I have to say is that uh, those arch, young architects who I worked for in Santa Barbara at Warren Gray, they gave me this advice to go to the East, go to Boston, things like that, go to Europe. I, I've been largely following their advice the entire time because I thought it was really sound advice. Uh, the advice that turned out to be very uh, fruitful for me. And one of the things they said early on was, don't get stuck in a practice, your first practice or even your second practice for too long. Make sure you work for multiple practices, put two years here, two years, two or three years and move around and do different types of buildings. And so the way the Boston Architecture College works while you're pursuing your degree, you're, you're getting some credit, academic credit for being mentored in a firm and they have a very structured process for that, how that works. So um, I came to Boston. I got a, firm, a job with a medical architecture firm doing hospitals. Um, I did that for a couple of years in the first two years that I was at school. And then I moved to another medical architecture firm that did uh, also kind of um, a little bit of retirement home housing, nursing, skilled nursing home. And then I did two more years in another firm that did private schools, public schools, a little bit of college work. And, and high-end housing. And, and I even did a, a BMW auto dealership. And I've started to, and as I'm moving from firm to firm, I'm starting to get a better sense of what the larger profession looks like, right? Um, and how, the, how architects sort of run their practices in different ways, how architects are just very different as people. And I think that was really important because by the time I got to Morris McDonald, I had been around the block a couple of times. And I, I was able to sort of, you know, I was at a point where I didn't really need to go around the block anymore to, to discover something that I thought was out there that I didn't quite get a taste of or something like that. I, I worked for not a, you know, I guess Fred was is definitely a star architect on some level. And, uh, you know, I'd worked there for two years. And I, and I guess uh, where I'm going with this is that I, I, I felt like 
at Morehouse McDonald, there was a lot, there were a lot of really good things going on there. And I especially like the practices projects. And it kind of took me full circle back to California where I was doing this really amazing work, uh, sort of kind of contemporary modern homes for really interesting clients. And I, I, I like doing homes. So that's why I kind of have stayed most, most of the time. Um, but I tried to do a lot of the commercial projects when we get commercial projects that are rare, but like, like restaurants, uh, I usually try to step up and, and see if I can run those projects. So I, that's what I've been doing. I've heard that same advice and you see that a lot, uh, especially when you're starting out, uh, people tend to move around a little bit right. uh, after a couple of years, two or three years. So it sounds like you took their advice and you had that opportunity. And, and I find it fascinating. You were able to do that while in school, because that's not something very common. So that's a, a good thing that the Boston college has. Yes. Um, it is a, you know, the BAC is uh, well regarded for this unique program that they've had since I think the beginning the origins of the school is it was a club. It used to be the Boston Architectural Club. And it was a club for draftsmen, largely run by firm owners or architects, licensed architects. And, you know, it was a nighttime club and it had social components. And somewhere in the mid 20th century became more of a school. And then by the 60s, it was definitely a school. It was just called the center then, I think. And then, um, and then it became accredited, fully accredited long before I went there maybe in the seventies. I don't know the detailed history that well, but essentially um, I look at my career from the very beginning when I went to Phoenix, I was in a firm and then I was studying at night and then I went to the BAC and it had that format, the same format that I was already exposed to in, in Phoenix. And I I think I've also um, learned along the way that I I like studying at night. Like I, even if I was going to college in the daytime and at the very end of the BAC, I kind of quit working so I can just study for a year during my thesis year, but I still did my best studying in the evening. You know, that was when I preferred to, to study. And, you know, if you go around regular colleges, we all know this kids are up all through the night. I mean, this is what young people do. So we're, we're, we're night owls when we're young and that's just kind of, that's suited that suits young people and for some reason, and it, and it, tended, it worked for me. You just mentioned being involved in that environment of being an academic. You've also given back to academics by being a studio critic and an instructor. How did you get involved in that? And what do you get out of that? And how do you bring that into your everyday practice as an architect? So I was asked to, uh, to co-teach uh, a, pro, a studio called Thesis, not, yeah, it was Thesis Studio. Um, the way the Boston Architectural Center worked when I went through it in the 90s is we'd have a uh, thesis, a year-long thesis. Uh, we wouldn't have a studio anymore. We'd just have a thesis. And we might have to finish up other courses. But the main activity was working on your thesis. And you'd have your thesis advisor, a whole team of people around you as you're working on your thesis, um, highly structured. But a lot of students struggled when they went into that, that thesis um, year. And I wasn't one of the people who struggled, but in the semester prior to uh, thesis, uh, they, they have a kind of uh, 
uh, seminar-based course that prepares you for writing your thesis, the beginnings of formatting your thesis. And it, I asked a lot of questions of the instructor. I think they were good questions. And I started to question the way the program was structured. Um, my wife at the time uh, was doing her thesis in physical therapy and her master's thesis. And I was comparing her program and what, how structured it was to the BACs program. And I, I didn't like some aspects of how unstructured the BACs thesis was at the time. So I was, I was raising my hand and saying, I think this should be like this. And, um, and having these after-class chats with the instructor about where I thought the program could be better. So after I graduated, that instructor who was heading the thesis program at the BAC, a guy named Bob Augustine, an architect, invited me to be a part of a new, they called it pre-thesis studio. It was a course designed specifically to prepare students better for the thesis year, to make that leap into the thesis year, which was demanding. And that's when I started teaching and I, I co-taught with a good friend and fellow grad and student at the BAC named Andrew Kidry. And we, we kind of work with Bob and the other instructors to, to kind of develop the pre-thesis studio in a certain direction. And I love teaching. I think teaching is very demanding and both um, in terms of preparation work, but it's, it's extremely intellectually stimulating. And um, so the, the ability to stay in, in academia being as an instructor, I think is an excellent way to keep your, your mind as sharp as possible because uh, I think practice, I, I actually believe on, on a lot of levels that practice is not as demanding on some level as the most demanding environments in some of academia. I don't disagree with you there. I think you get an opportunity to be engaged with people that are just constantly bombarding you with new ideas and challenging everything you're, everything you've thought of and or hold to believe as true. Right. From a student perspective, that's what students do. And that's what we encourage them to do. And so I think being involved in that sort of process uh, helps keep you sharp. Absolutely. I think I think that the, the sharpness uh, comment is really aimed at um, this schism between practice and the academy. And one of the things that I noticed, and this really goes back to Phoenix as well on some level, but what I noticed is that for what, what, what's concerning to firms and what's concerning to professors in architecture schools are very different worlds. And, and I've always been interested in bridging those worlds. And because I, I, see, the, I see immense value in a lot of things that people uh, later dismiss in practice that come from, from academia. And one of the things that I was you know, bridging theory in, into practice is, is kind of the crux of the issue, right? And so when I worked for Fred Coder, that's why that, that firm was so special to me is because they did that. I mean, that's, that's what Fred was able to do. And I think a lot of uh, high-level uh, architects who are, have made significant careers in academia and also have led significant practices. And there's, a, you know, there's dozens and dozens of architects that have done this. Uh, I think their firms are, are are different than the typical firm because they are at, they are able to make that that they build bridges in their own firms that between academia and practice, and I think that's a unique opportunity to have under your belt. 
let's go back to high school. You're doing all these drafting classes. You have an idea of what a career in architecture is going to be. Where did you think that career was going to go? And how has it been different than you maybe originally thought and or the reality of the profession, how that has been different than what you might've thought just coming out of high school? Well, I honestly, my, my biggest exposure to uh, what I thought an architect's life was like, was like Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch, right? That was the, (laughs) (laughs) that was the only architect I got to watch on a day-to-day basis as a kid. So I, you know, I knew you worked late. I knew that it was a demanding job, but it, but it was a job that people really respected. And it was a job where you were in, involved in drawing. Most of their activity was drawing. And you could build a, a happy life in that profession. What I didn't, what the Brady Bunch doesn't tell you is how demanding it is, actually. Uh, it does, also doesn't tell you what the pay is like and how challenging that can be. The sacrifices that you have to make are, are not conveyed in any TV or popular medium about architecture and architect, being an architect. Um, so the real story of how society thinks about our, our architects has not been told yet. I mean, there's just really, and it really hasn't. So I'm waiting for the day when that, that actually happens. So I think when I went to school and started working in firms and I realized this is really, this is really tough stuff. And there is a lot more to know than I ever imagined. And it humbles you. And so when I was younger, like a lot of young people, you're just going to, you know, take on the world and you think, you know, more, you think you're farther down the road than you really are because you don't understand what you don't know. And, and as, as you get exposed to all things you don't know, you kind of like, it, it humbles you and kind of pushes you back down a little bit. It takes a little bit of your fire away too. And, it, and, and you become a little bit more cautious about how you approach everything. And that happened to me. And so I think what I've learned that the big difference between the high school, high school experience and the present was that, that architecture is a vastly more complicated thing than I earlier, earlier imagined. It wasn't just, fun doing floor plans and and designing buildings and doing perspectives um you know three-point perspectives and colorful renderings and coloring with markers it was a very complicated field i want to go back now to architosh sure you started this uh you didn't necessarily you stated it had a, a big goal when you first started it it kind of broke free and open where did you want to take it and how has it grown over the past uh, 20 plus years that of its existence? The, my first goal was to do it for the purposes of building a site, right? As I explained, once people started to ask me to either write features from interviews or when I started to cover the news, I then became interested in this as a business possibility, right? You know, everyone was thinking, oh, the internet, the big boom of the internet, maybe you can make a lot of money. I didn't know anything about, you know, the internet until like 1998. So other than being a usual, a user, I I gave myself sort of a date um, of years, I think five years. uh, And I, I wanted to see if I could make a certain amount of money doing this. 
And, and if that might change the complexion or arrangement of my professional life in terms of practice versus doing architosh. I also didn't know if I would like doing architosh for forever. And when the five-year period came up, I didn't meet all the goals I wanted. You know, financial goals in particular were not uh, met because I think, was it five years or eight? Well, we were coming up against the, the, the big Great Recession. So the Great Recession was a big financial damper. And I, I thought about giving it up several times. And what changed my mind was the transition to Intel for the Mac platform. Because I thought, well, this is going to be a different lease on life for the Mac. And, and, and recall also uh, that at that time, Architosh was solely focused on the Mac side of things uh, in the CAD world. And so I thought, well, I got to stick it out to see where this goes, right, with the Intel transition, right? So that went really well, as we all know. That was a big, booming period. And, of course, right in those years, uh, that was the transition was 2005. We then, in the next few years, saw the iPhone and the iPad. Apple was on fire. And at that point, then I thought, okay, I'm, I'm sticking this out for the long term. I want to see where this all goes. And um, yeah, and, and my, my, my goals changed a little bit. Um, I had a, an, an open date for when I might stop Arkitosh. And um, I became much more committed in, uh, to the journalism of, of Arkitosh at that time as well. And things started to change for me, too, when I started getting invited to go to conferences, uh, you know, and people were flying me around the world. And that that, that uh, was a whole other benefit that became a lot of fun. And I, I loved that. So talk a little bit more about where Architosh has taken you in your career as an architect, or has it changed your career in ways you weren't anticipating? Yeah, that's OK. So that's a great question. So I think. Uh, the, the, one of the things that I realized early on that was a benefit of architosh to my career as an architect, especially as someone who is in charge of the IT uh, at a firm, in a small firm, arguably a small firm. We were like 15 at one point, maybe. We generally be around 10 people, right? So being involved with what's happening with the CAD industry and the BIM industry and the AEC industry in general at the digital side, uh, enables me a sort of an ability to see around the curve a little bit more than the average person in a firm. And that's given me a lot of confidence in the things that I've advocated for in terms of strategy at the practice I'm at Morehouse McDonald. So I've recognized that at the same time, I, I, I was invited to the um, co- at, to COFES in Arizona, the Congress on the Future of Engineering Software. I think that's what COFES stands for. And I, I met a, a person who was like the IT director from Gensler there. And we were on the bus one, one day. We sat next to each other going to a big cookout in the desert. And he was asking me about my career. And he learned that I wasn't licensed yet. And he said, you need to get licensed. And, uh, and I said, I know that I know I need to get licensed. I've been doing a lot of different things. I'm a busy guy. I will get licensed. And he said, no, you, you need to get licensed, not just to get licensed. You need to get licensed because it will benefit what your work at Architosh. 
but people will take Architosh more seriously if you have those credentials after your name. And I, I remember thinking, okay, well, that, I, that was a surprise to me. And then I decided, okay, I'm going to focus on this. And I wasn't necessarily focused on it because I didn't have a reason to focus on it, but I decided to focus on it and get licensed. I think the intersection of technology and design process is still the center heart interest for me as an architect, cohesively as an architect, um, having these two sides. I'm Part of the, the reason why I've been always focused on technology is because my early years being exposed to CAD were troubling in the sense that while I was uh, in the, this is the early 90s, going to school at the BAC and building these competencies with physical skills, model making, uh, hand rendering, drawing, uh, ink and mylar, all these great skills, uh, the CAD invasion was taking place. And I had trouble with the, the, this clash and I didn't see it as this or that. And I saw it as both of these things are important. And I was particularly interested in reconciling that in a positive way. And I didn't want to see the future of the industry go in a direction that would turn me off to the industry. And I was concerned that the technology that was taking place in the industry was making the practice of architecture not very attractive to me anymore. And this is very personal. I thought early CAD was incredibly uncreative and static. I could not understand why we'd ever want to draw on a black screen with Xeon colored lines. Um, that, how do you really, you and I know that when you're working by hand, really drawing things out. There's a process, there's a magic to that process that comes through. You know, the, the lightness of, the, of a pencil stroke or, uh, or even ink on mylar or different techniques, these physical analog techniques enable you to, there's a heuristic capability in these things that enable you to learn something about design at a higher level. And that was sort of being lost when you're talking about yellow and pink and you know, blue lines on a black screen. I could, you can't study a building that way when you're designing it. I wanted to, to reconcile this collision and that that's been part of my lifetime goal. And so Architosh fits me and practice fits me because these things come together. That says a lot, it says a lot about who you are and what Architosh is and your career. So with that, Anthony, I think we're going to take a short break. And afterwards, we're going to explore more about the Mac and Apple products that you use. So let's take a short break and we'll come right back. That's good. How do you manage your firm? Are you using dated and clunky software? Are you frustrated using spreadsheets and never really getting a clear view of the status of your projects? Then I'm happy you're listening because inside the Apple Studio sponsor Monograph can help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets, and you can do it all in real time. They have a feature called Money Gantt, and with this awesome tool, you can immediately see whether you are under or over budget on a project. Along with their new tool, Resource, which allows you to reallocate your team's time, 
and track its impact on your remaining budget, you can easily adjust your projects on a week-to-week basis. Monograph makes this easy. So help support Inside the Apple Studio by checking out Monograph at monograph.com. Be proactive with Monograph. Welcome back. Anthony, you've taken us through an amazing architectural journey. But now let's talk a little bit more about how you started using a Mac and eventually other Apple products. How were you first exposed to the Mac and what was the first Mac that you owned and used? My first exposure to a Mac, believe it or not, was I used to, when I came to Boston and started working for Roth and Roth and Heinemann, um, a firm that was doing a lot of important medical work in it locally. En route to the front door to the office, we had to kind of walk around this law office and they had this area in the front that no one ever sat in and it was all exposed to the glass windows and these little Mac pluses were there. It's just sitting by themselves turned on. And I literally saw these every day as I went into the office to work by hand. Most of us were working by hand at that time. This is like 89, 90. We had computers at the firm and I, that's when I was, I learned Eris on IBM and was a DOS user and all that stuff. But I was so intrigued by these little Macs. And there was someone in our family on my wife's side who was a tech guy working for a tech company. And we'd go visit them on the weekends. And he brought a little Mac Plus home one day and was just showing me how it worked. And I was, you know, honestly, I wasn't that interested. I had already touched an Apple II in, uh, in an architectural firm in Santa Barbara when I was in high school and I had an after, after school job. I was basically like a gopher and, you know, person at this firm. And uh, I was invited to do some typing on the Apple II. And I thought, you know, they're interesting. But at that time, I was just so interested in, in being an architect. I wasn't that focused on computers. But what happened was, as it got further into the 90s, it was obvious that computers were important. People started using them. Uh, for regular college studies work, laptops were starting to emerge, uh, the big chunky kind. And I ended up getting a Mac LC2 as my first Mac. And the reason I got it was I was comparing that with some of the IBM machines or clones at the time and thinking I wanted to get, you know, a, a DOS machine. And I just was so spellbound by the color uh, of the Mac LC2 and the interface and I thought, well, this, you know, this was system seven days. I thought, how can I, I you know, it was a night and day between the DOS world and the system seven days. And so I'm like, I'm going to get the Mac. And it was actually inexpensive enough to get. So I got the Mac and I loved it. And I didn't do any drawing on it yet, but I was doing all of my college work, you know, my note taking and writing papers and, and playing games. By 1994, while still in school, I decided to get a Power Mac 7100, and that was the first machine I put CAD on. And uh, so those were that's my origin point to the Mac. You know, Mac LC2 was the first machine. Then I got a Power Mac 7100 and was uh, enmeshed in the whole chip war issue then at that point, right? Because we were transitioning to the PowerPC architecture. You mentioned you put CAD on it. What CAD were you using? I'm trying to think. I I had a lot of, I didn't put anything that was like well-known. I think maybe, um, maybe I'd Mac draw. That's not really a CAD tool, uh, but there was a Claris CAD tool that I later came into possession and I did install it, but I didn't do anything with it yet. 
I was exploring some of the free early 3D tools that were kind of floating around. I'd get like copies of that. And the, yeah, I, I don't really recall exactly the names of the tool, but later when I graduated, I still had the machine. And those machines were also the machines at Coder Chem. They had a lot of them. And that's what I was working on there. So I eventually put Minicad on it at home. That was really the first tool I put on the PowerMax 7100. Okay. So you were a Minicad user. Yes. I, I became a Minicad user after being a little bit of a uh, learning AutoCAD in school. And, uh, and I did two projects on ArisCAD in like 80, uh, 1990. Does the firm that you work for now, do they use Macs or are they a PC based firm? So when I started, you know, at Morris McDonald, um, I had just put together the Arkajosh site. This is the dark. These were very dark days for Apple. Steve Jobs came back. He was ICEO. He was interim CEO. It was very uncertain times for the Mac. So when we introduced CAD at that tool, at that firm, everything was on PC. And so I, I was on the PC for many, many years, probably about eight seven, maybe something like that. Were you using AutoCAD for that? No. So there was a person there named Jimmy, this guy named Jimmy, and he was recommending that the firm use Minicad or Vectorworks because he had some exposure to it. So I uh, knew that tool, obviously, from Coder Chem days. So, you know, I, I thought it would be a good fit. And I agreed with this person's thinking that it would be a good fit for that practice because it was a very drawing culture oriented practice. I contemplated just sort of, you know, I contemplated other tools, namely ArchiCAD and not so much AutoCAD. I've never been an AutoCAD fan. I'm more of a fan of it now than I was then. And I thought, you know, we got to introduce a tool for this particular practice where we're drawing on a white screen that looks like paper. Because uh, it's not gonna, it's not gonna gel well if we're drawing on a black screen. So I did a test project there as a consultant, and that was the beginning. And we ended up just staying on Vectorworks the whole time. That's how that started. So you said eight years on a PC. Did the firm eventually switch over and start using Vectorworks on a Mac? Yes. Well, I, my theory was, my thinking, and I still have this thinking, was that. People perform their best when they're using tools that they're, they already know and they're comfortable with. So I always wanted to build a cross-platform office. So I, I introduced a Mac early to the firm right away, uh, but it was a server. And it was, it was, actually, uh, it was actually for just getting the internet to everyone. Uh, it was just an internet tool. And then I introduced uh, X server, uh, no, a FileMaker server at some point. That was also the Mac. And then eventually we used an Xserv for our main file server. Somewhere, um, I think when the G5s came out, remember how important they had that commercial, these like industrial grade machines, they look powerful, right? So some people said, uh, I'll volunteer to try a Mac. So they did. And some of them didn't like them at that time. And so, but slowly over time, people started as Apple progressed and the iPhone took off people started to come in with Mac preference. So to this day, we're a cross-platform firm, always using tools that can have a native version on Mac and Windows or their cloud-based tools. And that's been the mantra at the firm ever since. So I'm glad you mentioned uh, the tools. What sort of tools do you use in the office beyond 
Vectorworks as the main CAD platform, what other sort of tools or services do you use in the practice? So the basics of our practice in the very beginning were to, our CAD tool was Vectorworks. Our 3D tool was Vectorworks. Our data management tool was FileMaker. And uh, we had Microsoft Excel and uh, Word. Uh, and obviously architects use Excel quite a bit. And, and though, you know, that, those were the, that's like the heart and center of our tool set. Um, I always tried to keep the tool set very minimal and light and efficient. And we, you know, at early points, I brought in like Stratavision. I did a couple of things in Stratavision 3D because it was a tool that I had learned earlier. And, you know, Adobe tools, of course, people had their affinities to Photoshop and there's some uses for that in practice. Uh, some people also were using other Adobe tools around PDF and so forth. Um, these days for PDF, we've been become a blue bean firm. Uh, advocate for that, uh, even though some people come in and go, I want to use Adobe Acrobat or whatever, because they know that uh, I told up, I push for Bluebeam as much as possible, but still let people kind of have some preference there. Um, I think it's important for people to be able to use tools that they know. Uh, they feel, it feels better when you have that ability to use tools that you already know, rather than being told what tools to use. This is part of also my thinking about practice and architecture and that we're, we're gonna, we need to capitalize on people's talents. And if people have built competencies across different kinds of tools, we should embrace those competencies and not force them onto different tools because we have some silly notion of some kind of standard way of doing things. I think the industry is so complicated from the standpoint of what we're trying to do as architects, the tool side should, um, should on some level uh, empower us to take on all of these complexities. And so tools, um, we should have free, a liberal idea around tools so that we can really unleash our capabilities. I was um, marveled when I spoke to, to big uh, Bjark Ingels group and learned that if someone comes in that firm and they know some exotic tool and they go, I want to use this tool to do this, they actually embrace it and they go, okay, that's great. We, no one here knows how to use that tool, but that's awesome that you have this capability. And so they have a process where people come in and they're like, we'll buy that tool for you and support that you on that tool. And you can then also, you know, in our, our common little classroom time when we teach each other stuff, teach us how that tool works and maybe other people will pick up that tool as well. And I like that process because I think that that liberal minded process uh, about technology is better suited for us to, to make, uh, to, to, to maximize capitalization of talent. Uh, and if, when you're not trying to maximize capitalization of talent, you're, you're already, you're making the practice, practice of architecture even harder and you're going in the wrong direction. You need to go in the right direction. So I know cool tools cost money, but architects only spend between one and a half percent of revenue to two and a half percent of revenue on average. That's very, very low compo compared to other industries. Healthcare is three times that. Uh, financial services like banking, 10 times that. Manufacturing is similar, uh, but in manufacturing, you have a ton of people who don't touch computers at all. You know, so I know that's changing, 
So I think that for the small amount of money that we spend on digital tools, the cost of technology should not be um, some kind of barrier to cap, uh, maximizing capitalization of talent. I think you're preaching to the choir here <laughs> on that. No, I'm glad to hear that. I love it. You mentioned Bluebeam yes. in a cross-platform office. How do you manage Bluebeam on your Macs in your office? Well, we have Bluebeam on Windows machines and on Mac machines. We don't do Bluebeam Studio sessions. We use it primarily as a market tool. There's not a lot of management because we're not using sessions. I'm looking for Bluebeam to move into the cloud fully to, to be a true cloud tool like BIM 360 or Aconix or Viewpoint or Procore. Those kinds of tools, those fully cloud-based tools, I think are better suited to practice. You can get to your data and your information, your drawings and documents, wherever you are, regardless of device. And I think, I think that's more flexible. So for right now, do you use Bluebeam just strictly on the PCs or do you use it through Parallels or Bootcamp? Oh, I know where you're going with this question. No, we use it on the Mac too. So we're using the last version that's installed. I'm the only one actually in the office right now presently who has Bluebeam on a Mac. The firm is always kind of in 50-50 Mac PC, but in the last wave of new people coming in the firm, they've been more PC people. And so I, I, you know, there's a couple of us on the Mac and more people on PC. It's always changing. I see a lot of people questioning, um, and that seems to be the number one program that Mac users are, are having a hard time replacing and or if they are trying to use it, the previous version's not really compatible with latest versions of the OS. And, you know, so either running it through parallels or something like that, it seems to be the most common option right now until it moves. Hopefully they've been talking about a cloud based platform for years. We'll, we'll see if they actually get there. I think it's maybe going to come this later in the second half of the year, but we'll see. Another thing that I often see or am questioned on, or have seen a lot of questions about is how do you manage or what tools do you use to manage your time management and or accounting at your firm? Yeah, that's a great question. And I, I, I actually owe the Arctic audience an update on those kinds of tools. I haven't done that in a long time and there's a lot of change out there. So QuickBooks is still sort of the, the leader in the market for small firm accounting. But we've used Harvest, which is a not fully SaaS-based tool in the cloud for timekeeping, and it works great. I don't see any reason why we would change out of, out of Harvest. It, Harvest also has integrations with another tool in the cloud that we used for years called Basecamp for project management. We've been using that since 2008. Uh, we were in the cloud early at Morehouse McDonald. I pushed for that. Uh, we were actually in the cloud in an earlier tool from Australia. I'm forgetting the name of it. And had Gantt charts, but um, in the end, we realized Basecamp was better suited for our practice. And Harvest and Basecamp can talk to each other. The projects can sync, so that's nice. That's one of the reasons why I'm for more tools in the cloud, because the APIs that are being written with these tools enable the tools to talk to each other. And I think that's, that's another liberal, democratizing and liberalizing force in technology so that people can 
You know, if the contractor wants to use their cloud tools to manage their work, maybe it's Procore, but the architect wants to use another tool, that these tools can talk to each other because the cloud tools have different kinds of, you know, that are out there today serving our industry have a lot of different fo uh, focuses. A lot of them are right now highly focused on the contractor's issues and not so focused on the designer's issues. And I, I gave a talk uh, on a panel at Build Boston in 2013 about Basecamp a little bit. And I was advocating it at the time for our practice because our, our practice is not, is, is communication challenged. And what I mean by that is if you think of the X axis as having to do with complexity of program and the, and the degree of change to the program and, and just communication complexity on the x-axis and the y-axis is complexity of the building type on all aspects of the building type. You can create a graph and on that graph you can position yourself on the graph in terms of the combination of the building types you do and the program complexity in the communication complexity. So I saw this chart and the New, Ze New Zealand AIA equivalent years and years ago. And I was fascinated with it because it's, some practices are gonna be more, it's like a bicameral thing. You're gonna be more communication challenge versus building technology challenged. And for our practice, high in residential work with our clients, we're more communication challenged. So Basecamp was, we approach looking at the tools from what the tools do for you based on solving what side is more difficult for you. It can orient you a certain way. And Basecamp was excellent wrangling in the communications, getting people out of email, getting communications into threads so you can keep the discussion together. And that's why we use Basecamp. Now, we don't use it as much anymore because of tools like Dropbox, the just the, the cloud boom that happened in the last decade has sort of put a dent in that the usage of that tool. Our contractors don't want to use Basecamp anymore. The contracts we work with want to use things like Procore. And so uh, right now I'm, I'm on the hunt for solving that solution. Either the Procore guys get tools inside of their cloud tool that fit our practice in terms of our communication challenges or they don't, and we have to find another kind of solution. What other Apple products or services are you currently using? In our practice, we don't use iCloud. We don't use any of the default Apple applications like, you know, iWork, for example, or Numbers. We try to use cross-platform tools. So um, we're going to use Excel, Word. We're going to use those on the Mac and on Windows. We're going to use we have our, our our emails through Google, so we have Google Docs that are exposed at our back and call, and um, we use you know different people use different things. As long as it's shareable and it can go cross platform, you can get to it from both platforms, Windows or Mac, and preferably from mobile devices. Mm -hmm. And that too is Android and iOS, not just iOS. That's where we want to put our data. We need our data to be fully democratized and accessible at all times. How about you personally? Are you a iPhone user with iCloud and calendar and mail and all that? Yeah. So my, you know, my personal setup is, um, you know, I have an iPhone, an iPad, I've had all the Apple stuff. So I definitely live around two tools, Evernote uh, for keeping 
I mean, it's a data wrangling tool for me, right? It's also where I do a lot of rough writing, uh, rough draft writing. And then I also use Asana. Asana is a project management tool. It's a very modern one. You probably know it. It's super popular. And it's one of those tools that has great API connections to a lot of other tools. So I can create a Zoom meeting out of Asana. I just did that for the first time this last week. When you, when you, when you bridge those tools together, you can. So now it's on your, your Kanban board. You know, a week out, I have a Zoom call scheduled. And I was able to do it all through inside of Asana without having to log into to Zoom. I thought that was pretty magical. And then it appeared on my Gmail-based Google calendar. So all, all automatically. So I'm a big time believer in pushing for these automations. It saves us a lot of time, uh, prevents errors um, when things are working well. That's about my tool sets. Very, very minimal. I use Grammarly, of course, with Architosh. I have to, I, I write in that. I love it. It's a very simple white space. It's like a blank piece of paper and it's very clean. And, and of course you're, you're getting all these suggestions and it's, it's, it's watching your back. What sort of tools are you using now to run Architosh? Architosh has been fully WordPress based since 2007, uh, well, 2008, uh, when it launched in the current site format. And it's all custom WordPress. And we have a ton of custom um, plugins and we have a lot of standard plugins too. It, it, it is phenomenally complicated. There's, uh, there must be 30 plus uh, plugins behind Architosh and, you know, an e-commerce engine and Stripe and for the subscription revenue and things like that. So I don't share all the details about Architosh, but what I'll tell you is that, you know, I'm happy to, to recommend to people the some of the tools that I think that people should be using like Yoast for CEO uh, for your search engine optimization, your SEO. Um, it's a fantastic tool. I have Boxzilla for like little pop-ups. I have, you know, a lot of standard stuff that's out there that's well known. It's really solid. Uh, try to stick with stuff that's solid. And if I can't find that, then I, I have to have my developer build custom stuff. I was going to ask you, have you done most of the WordPress work yourself or have you farmed that out? No, I farmed that out because that was above, that was outside my wheelhouse, those skills. So that's where my web development skills sort of ended or maxed out. You know, I was able to do a lot in Dreamweaver and work with JavaScript and PHP code and thing. And I had a lot of little fancy things to help automate the site as much as possible for a non-database based site. But once I moved to a database with WordPress as the front front end, I realized that's where I'm going to be for a long time. As someone who's written and reported on Apple in the CAD, BIM, slash 3D industry, I want to get your opinion on what Apple has done well and maybe what they've not done very well for architects over the last 20, 25 years. Okay, so I should say that in the very beginning when I created Architosh, I got a lot of reach out from people at Apple. Um, they were really happy that it was I created the site. I got invited to, to meet them at Macworld, um, some senior level Apple people. And they said at that meeting, they said, what can we do to help you succeed? And, and I, I shared with them what I wanted them to do to help me succeed. One thing that they were doing already was that they had a dedicated marketing page for Apple. I mean, I'm sorry, for architects, architecture uh, on the Mac. 
And on that site, they listed Architosh. That was a huge thing for me because I, I generated a tremendous amount of inflow of new people to the site. But more than that, it was a marketing point for architects who maybe were moving to Apple for the first time. They were able to branch off of that page and understand that there were resources out there for them. So when they took that page away in like 2011, um, that was disappointing, not just on a personal level because it, all of a sudden this inflow of, of new readers to Architosh stopped, but it was bad for them because I think that, you know, it's the, the internet is a very big place. And when you're starting out, maybe considering moving to the Mac uh, for the first time as an architect, you know, where do you go? And a lot of people, believe it or not, they went directly to Apple to ask them. And so people still go to Apple to ask them and they still, and they obviously still recommend Architosh. And I still hear that to this day. I mean, there are new people finding Architosh who tell me, yeah, I, I was recommended by Apple recommended. I mean, people in like Apple stores know about Architosh. So I think that Apple could do a lot more on the marketing side. I think they, it's become a very consumer-based enterprise, Apple, you know, with the watch and the phone, the iPod. Not, that's, of course, not in any meaningful order, but I'm, these are just some of the devices that are huge. Music's a big thing. And people were feeling that they were forgetting their professional base. And I think that really peaked for me in 2013 when they came up with the Darth Vader Mac, Mac Pro, you know, the little black round cylinder. that Tra people, Trash can? Yeah, the trash can Mac. I don't like to call it. The people call it the Darth Vader Mac, Mac Pro. But I, anyways, I thought that machine was fascinating and brilliant on a lot of levels, but totally off on so many more. And it was a failure. And um, and it's exciting to, to, that they came back to the market in a very serious way and created a regular box, which we have today. And I think they'll keep making regular box. They don't need to make round boxes or, you know, or anything like that. I think they need to start work around standardized kind of volumes so that people have component flexibility. And so what I think Apple's doing now that's pleasing me very much is they're taking a more serious professional direction with, you know, the, like the Mac Pro and just all their pro-oriented gear. And of course, the chip transition is a big, exciting thing that's happening as well. What do you think the impact of Apple Silicon will have on Apple in general, but I think on the practice of architecture specifically, do you think that we may see some PC-based apps only come to the Mac because of the speed and or potential speed that Apple Silicon is showing? I think that's possibly true. I think the reason why we're going to end up in the end with more applications is because I believe if the ARM processors continue to on their trajectory of performance compared to Intel, which is a lower slope on a, if you're looking at a chart, we're going to see Windows come over to ARM. And when Windows comes over to ARM, it means it's there now, but not in any dominant way. But when Windows comes over to ARM fully and that becomes the performance preference, then we're going to see all these window develops first time having to do something they've never had to do, which is to make a chip architecture transition. They've never had to do that. Apple's done this several times now, and that puts Apple in a superior position 
as a platform company, but it also puts Apple's own developers in a superior position as app companies uh, because they've gone through the transition. They know what it's like. They've known, they, they like some long-term Mac developers have known how to think strategically about making sure their, their code base is more portable already, um, that it has you know, an A and B path directions for what might happen because they know that Apple can take them in a whim any, in any place. So that's part of being on the platform and being a winner on the platform is you need to build up the competencies to, to be efficient on the platform as a coder, as a coding company. So Windows companies have been spoiled. They haven't had to more. They haven't had to do this as much, I believe. And when, they, when I think what's going to happen is we're going to end up with a lot of new tools. When people start to move to ARM, you might as well make a Mac version. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to just be something that you should do. And so in my discussions with like Autodesk folks, for example, and I had a big interview uh, last year after the Revit Open Letter event with Autodesk's CEO. From what was said in that interview, it's clear that Autodesk is thinking along the lines of the future of the Mac. Um, they've already done that with AutoCAD, and it's been a decade-long process. Anagos mentioned how AutoCAD is actually an incredibly modern application in the sense that the code has been re built from the ground up over a decade to target multiple platforms and device types. It's very modern compared to Revit, uh, which is kind of stuck in the late 90s, early 2000s Windows stack. And they're in the process of, of fixing that. I don't know what that means. Obviously, they're not going to reveal all their cards, but you know what's been said is that Revit will, will end up going in a direction that's similar, somewhere between Fusion 360, which is another kind of very modern tool that Autodesk has for the mechanical CAD market, and and AutoCAD, you know, somewhere in somewhere in between those tools, uh, a thick client app like Fusion and a kind of traditional full app like AutoCAD that happens to have a version for uh, Android, iOS, the web, both Windows and Mac. This, I think, is gonna. I think the ARM processing transition is going to be a ten. It's going to be a decade-long transition for the entire computer industry, and it's going to be interesting to see what happens. The future looks bright. I think the future looks bright. Yeah, I think change favors the Mac in particular, and I think what Apple keeps doing with integrations between iOS and and Mac OS, and now we have Watch OS and we have the iPad OS. I think all of the synergies that Apple is doing as well, being able to put iOS apps on the map now, the biggest app market in the world is the iOS market, I believe. So I think they're in a really good position, but getting new tools, some of the legendary old tools, you know, let's, let's talk about SolidWorks, for example, let's talk about that kind of tool. You know, is that going to end up on the Mac in the future or is a new kind of tool that, that, takes the place of SOLIDWORKS and end up on the Mac in the future, right? Is something like Shaper, th- Shaper 3D, which is extremely new and modern, which is going after SOLIDWORKS. Are they, I mean, they're already on iOS, now they're on ARM on the Mac. So we don't know what's gonna happen. I think we're gonna have stalwarts are gonna fall and we're gonna have new stars coming up. And 
taking their place on some level. And I don't know, I really don't know who's gonna survive this transition and who's not gonna survive. It's interesting to think about. What is your favorite thing about using a Mac and other Apple devices? My number one favorite thing about using Apple devices is I, I feel that the, the, the aesthetics uh, that are embodied in the devices on a holistic gestalt level are similar to architecture at the highest level. I feel that the devices and their interfaces resonate with me as a designer and what, what my concerns are as a designer. And I don't feel that with any other, very few other products. And I certainly do not feel that with Microsoft Windows as an operating system. They can change their colors and do whatever they're gonna to do to the cows come home, never gonna feel it. It just doesn't, they, they don't have it. They just don't have something that Apple possesses. I'm not sure why that is, but we can look at the auto industry, for example, and we can also talk about how certain manufacturers in the auto industry are never going to ever have the aesthetics and feeling of maybe like Porsche or BMW or something like that. They, their competencies and their strengths are in other areas. And I think Microsoft's competence strengths are in, in a similar fashion in other areas. So I think you, you have to play to your strengths. And I think that they should continue to play to their strengths because even as a Mac user, they, Microsoft, for example, has strengths that are useful, right? They have competencies that are very important and useful. So I think what matters for me, what's always resonated the most is I'm using a tool that fills one with me in terms of where my aesthetic goals are as a creative person. And I don't really want to be anywhere else, but sometimes I have to switch platforms. And I've had to do that several times in the past, as I said, with Morris McDonald. Uh, and then sometimes you need a tool that's just not on the platform. So if someone's considering using a Mac in their practice and they're listening to this now, what advice would you give them? I would ask them to ask themselves, you know, to get in touch with what's driving them to consider working on the Mac to begin with, because I think that's an important consideration. If you're on the platform because of this feeling that's eye ground in aesthetics and design consideration kind of thinking, if you're there, if that's what's driving you. I think that's a, that you have to understand that's a long-term kind of relationship. If you're there because there's some Mac tool uh, like sketch or something, which, you know, uh, you know, some tool that doesn't exist on windows that you're there for that. That's a different consider a set of considerations. There are different reasons to come to the platform. If you're there because you like your iPhone so much and, and you've moved from the halo, if you're there from the halo effect, I would say that that's probably because of this sense that I've been talking trying to communicate about this aesthetic sense that things are just more seamless and more integrated. Well, that's a good place to be then. I think that, you know, it's a long-term relationship. So my recommendation is recognize that if you're coming over, that you need to make a long-term relationship commitment. This is not, you know, one-year problem. Try the Mac for a year and see how it goes. No, you need to try the Mac and move to the Mac platform for, for many years. Um, do, do yourself a favor and give yourself some time in this relationship because for one thing, 
you know, Apple makes lots of transitions and this is another big one. We're going through the arm transition. So there's going to be some little bit of, you know, it's going to be a little rough for a while. So let's get to the other side of that. Okay. So give yourself the time to get to the other side of that. If you, like I described with Architosh, at one point I considered giving it up. I decided to keep going. I gave myself a window. It was a healthy window. It was like five to eight year window. I gave myself a different, longer, indefinite window when things started to change, like the iPhone came and all this other thing. thing. I think you have to, we have to give ourselves long enough time to do a proper consideration for evaluating why we're, we've made that change to begin with. I think that's something that applies in life in general, whether it's trying out an architecture firm for a few years or whatever, you, you, know, you need to give yourself time. I think that's great advice. As we wrap up this section of the show, I want you to share with the audience one app, utility, or service that you find most useful. For me, I find what, what I find most useful is Dropbox. Dropbox has opened up the world for flexibility with getting your data. In the past, you had to use FTP servers or you'd put data into different places. You know, you'd open fire, uh, open up ports and firewalls so you can get to your home network at your office or your home network. You don't have to do any of that now. Just put your, your data in the cloud and it's, and it's great. So now on to our final segment, the 10 questions. We'll start with the first one, and that is, what's your favorite word? Vacation's my favorite word, because I don't get many of them. Obviously, I'm doing two, two careers at once, and my time is really precious to me. So vacation time's my favorite time. What's your least favorite word? Windows. And I mean the operating system. <laughs> <laughs> I find it sad that it is not improved, that it's still so frustrating to deal with so many things. It's, I, I, I don't understand why they've had so many, they have decades to, to improve that and it's still very frustrating. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I love travel and, and, and I think what gets me excited, in terms of creativity, what gets my imagination going is traveling. I love to travel anywhere and just seeing things that, that really ignites my imagination. What turns you off? Technology problems. I don't like computer tech. I, I, I think fundamentally I'm an impatient person. I know I'm patient. Obviously you have to be patient to be a Mac long-term Mac user. I think that is, that is, that comes with the territory, but I think I'm impatient in the way that Steve jobs was impatient in the sense that, just being impatient with this technology should be simple and easy to use. And, you know, he loved um, the Hewlett Packard calculators, for example. I, I, a lot of us love, love those calculators. Uh, yeah. Technical problems are a major downer and they are part of the reason why I've created Architosh and have created my own career this way is because I don't want to experience downers or things that are hindering my, uh, my imagination creative juices in, in practice and I want technology to get out of the way. So that's why I think technology needs to, to be simple and, and seamless and problem-free. What sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of rain and I, it's very peaceful and I could, I work well when it's raining. What sound or noise do you hate? That's a hard one. Probably lawnmowers in the background. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> There's one in my in my background. I don't know if it's being picked up by the audio, but no, I don't like lawnmowers. What's your favorite curse word? Oh wow. I don't know if I have a favorite curse word. I don't like the phrase God damn it, because I don't like the word God being used in that. That's not really a curse word, but I'm not a fan of that. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? I always thought it would be fun to be a aircraft pilot, like a commercial aircraft pilot, because I like planes and I like, I like, I think flying is a very space. It must be a very spatial thing. And I, I believe as an architect, I have good spatial awareness yeah, I think it would be it'd be fun to be a pilot. What profession would you not like to do? Anything involving the human being inside the human body. So <laughs> no MD in my any future life of mine. I, I don't uh, I don't fancy that kind of stuff. <laughs> if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Hmm. Probably welcome. And here's the Wi-Fi password. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a wonderful way to wrap this one up. Anthony, I'd like to thank you for joining me on this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. Please let the listeners know where they can find you online. Well, people can find uh, Architosh at architosh.com and uh, on Twitter, handle Architosh. And uh, yeah, that's it. I'm also, we have an Architosh uh, readers group on LinkedIn and there's an Architosh pa- uh, website page on LinkedIn as well. There's two places. So you just type in Architosh on LinkedIn and you can get to both. And I encourage readers to, to uh, visit the site, uh, sign up for our newsletter or it's free uh, monthly newsletter, Expresso, um, and, and, and follow us on LinkedIn. Thank you again, Anthony, for your time. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, Neil. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. I'd like to thank my guest, Anthony Frosto Robledo, for joining me and Monograph for their support. Learn more about Monograph at monograph.com. Find the show in your favorite podcast player by searching for Inside the Apple Studio and help support the show by leaving a five-star rating and comment in Apple Podcasts. Remember to follow the show by selecting the follow button in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Inside the Apple Studio is a production of Apple for Architects at appleforarchitects.com.